Let me begin this morning by thanking Pastor Paul for the privilege of sharing God's word with you and I assume the elders as well. And also I'd like to thank several people in the congregation who have prayed specifically for me. I deeply, deeply appreciate that. It was a great blessing. Our biblical text of this morning comes from John 15, verses 1 to 11. I'm assuming that most of you, or I would put it up, I would put it up for you as the vine and the branches. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. I must confess to you, I struggled with this passage. Oh, I knew it. Initially, it's easy. There's probably 50, 50 books written on this text, on the vine and the branches. And, but as I studied it, I said, I'm not sure that's the right way to look at this. And so I'm going to look at it a bit differently. I hope it will be a blessing to you. I'm happy to see my really good friend here, who was a pastor with me during my time of preaching at Meadow Creek Church. But let's take a look at this passage. I wrote about four different introductions to this, and I didn't like any of them, and I'm still not there yet. But I'm going to try something. I hope it works. Many years ago, probably I would assume 30 or 40 years, when my children were young and finally got cars, they weren't brand new cars. And so they often had problems. I was at the time interim pastor at University Avenue Congregational Church, a remarkable church, not a large church. But there was one young man, one man there that became very good friends of mine, a friend of mine. His name is Cecil Kleinendorf. Cecil would help cars on every young person, especially going to school, or elderly people. All they had to do was pay for the parts. Well, I was their pastor, and I had car troubles. And Cecil said, bring them over to my garage. So I did. And I learned a lot of things about cars from not a lot, but enough to keep them going. Well, one day my daughter's car needed brakes. Well, I changed brakes a lot of times. So I proceeded to do it. I finished her car. It was her right front wheel. Got it all done, so proud of myself. Well, what you got to do is drive it around the block and make sure nothing's wrong. So I went around, and it seemed a little bit tight. I wondered something's wrong, so I pulled back into my driveway. Took it apart, and some smoke was coming out of there. Not much, but some. I didn't know what was wrong with it. So I got on the telephone and said, it's Cecil, yeah. I was fixing my daughter's brakes, and da 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 this is what happened. He said, did you know that on those Oldsmobiles, they have a sliding caliper on it? No, I didn't even know there was such a thing. So he says, tell you what, Don, I'll be over. He came over. Pulled it apart, back together, worked perfect. This is a little bit about this particular passage. This passage on the vine and the branches is set in the context of an agricultural analogy. Now, analogy is a, some similarity or comparison between two different objects that distinguish it from a metaphor. A metaphor is something you take characteristics from one thing and apply it to it. Another. This is not that. 
This is a metaphor or similarities that you want to take from the vine and the branch. And what he's going to do is imply, now meta analogies are not always clear. You're going to apply it, the similarities, to the Christian life. What is the relationship from the vine to the branch? Now I want you to think about what is the relationship between the believer and the source of life. That's what he wants to do. It's not always easy to do, but that's what he wants to do. Each of them, the vine, the branch is related to the vine in such a way that it tends to produce fruit. And the Christian is so related to its source of life in Christ. And let me pause here. Be careful that you do not separate the divine father from Jesus. In evangelicalism, we have a tendency to do that, especially in salvation. As though God was somewhere over there not involved. He is. So please, and I'm going to make that point clear, I hope, today. But that's, that's the issue that we face. So the branch related to the vine, this idea of relationship becomes central. Let me put up an overview as to how I look at this thing and how I interpret it. I want to say to abide refers to a person, not a place. We'll get back to that. And by inference to a place. Now, I've changed this again because <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> I left out the idea of relation. Relation is the central key of this passage. Where do you relate? A relationship that produces consequence, in this sense, fruit. Let's look at the Bible has two basic words that they use for fruit. We might have this, bios and zoe. We had a missionary from Taiwan not too long ago who will use this in his sermon, if you remember. But I want to put it up and define it a little bit more. He didn't have the zoe too correct, but that's no big deal. So I put the Greek up there, which means nothing to you which is an A sound. But bios, we get as a basic word for biology. So that's where the vine and the branch and the fruit bearing occur. Bios is a word that refers to creaturely life. That is the breath of life given by God, the creator, to all creatures who possess this breath of life. And I noticed I didn't correct breath, so you'll have to forgive me. I have some health problems, which many people are praying, and my fingers as I type don't go very well, and I get more letters than I want. So I had some, some here. Zoe life is the one that we associate in the Bible, always applied with the adjective eternal. It is the breath of life that comes from God, affirmed by Christ's redemptive work. So Zoe life is the life we want to get. There's a problem in the Christian life, for some folks, especially when bios life is so attractive. This is the life that is lived by the world that produces a certain kind of a value system that may be exciting and attractive. And so some Christians get caught in moving from Zoe life back to bios life. This is the tension. This is the relationship. 
And so we have this conflict within this text. Let me read it briefly from the text. John 15, just the first few verses, which read, I am the vine, and the, the I here is Christ. We will look at that more. I am the vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, and whatever branch does bear fruit, he prunes it. We'll have to look at that a little bit. And so we have this. So let's take a look. I'm going to give you a presupposition of mine. You don't have to agree with me, all right? I'm going to suggest to you that the ultimate goal of redemption is not forgiveness of sin, though it has to include that. It is there. But the restoration at this point, the world back to its purpose and function as God has created it, and especially the believer back into the image of God in which that believer was originally created, that he or she and you and I may function according to the purpose for which we were created. And I want to see this in this passage, that we are there. Now, it's not easy. When you're a Christian and become a believer in God, that's settled. You have a relationship with God. You don't have to work at it. It is a gift of God to you. This, when I became a Christian and you became a Christian, we may still have habits, all kinds of problems that still go with us. They don't just go away. <laughs> They're still there. <laughs> and we face a problem. Sometimes those are very, very difficult when we come to them. In his book, I was questioning whether I would even show this, but in his book, if I get to it, <laughs> oh yeah. Ray Anderson, who teaches theology and mission, uh, theology and uh, pastoral ministry at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, wrote about the struggle of this life. And I didn't think I would ever lose that, but I knew that something's going to get lost. Anyway, in essence, he says this. He says, why, as he begins, since we preach the gospel and the forgiveness of sins through the death of Christ on the cross and through his atoning work, do we walk away sometimes we go to, and wonder if God really loves us? We come to church Sunday after Sunday, he writes. We confess our sins, we receive forgiveness, and we wonder, I'm not sure God is really pleased with me. <laughs> and into that depth comes an accusing guilt and wonderment. And we go away disappointed. And then we search desperately back into the cross as if we can find some sense of peace and acceptance before God. That's a tension between Zoe and Bios. Now, I'm not sure that you folks have that tension, but some of us do. We've been living our Christian life and suddenly something happens. 
Say, oh, man. Lord, can you forgive me? <laughs> I didn't mean to do this. But it goes on. And we have what I've suggested, a sense of penance. We feel bad, feel bad for two weeks. They say, well, I felt bad enough. Maybe God will still like me. <laughs> and then you feel comfortable with yourself. I'd like to take a look more specifically with that light. Did we have a light clock back then? No. I'll have my watch. I'm going to look at this text. Three features of this text. I want to look at, first of all, the meaning of abide. And secondly, what I'm going to call the incentive to continue to abide. And finally, what do we mean by fruit bearing and apply it to the Christian life? Let's take a look, first of all, at the meaning of abide. I want to do just two things with the meaning of abide. First of all, I want to offer an interpretation, a linguistic one or a, a dictionary meaning of abide. This word comes from a little Greek word called meno. It can mean abide or it can mean remain, depending upon the context in which you use it. I'm going to use it uh, in the sense of abide. And here's the definition. To stay in a condition or state or relationship or commitment. In essence, keep your trust firm. I think the easiest way I can get at this is by way of illustration. A marriage, a marriage illustration. When you get married, you and your wife stand before God and you go through an oath of covenant. You do not make a contract. I want to make a difference here. Your marriage is not a contract. If somebody does something wrong, get rid of them. I'll get a new wife or a new husband. It's a covenant. And it says we are married for better or worse, for richer or for until death do we depart. That's what this word means. Stay there. Keep firm in that commitment that you have. This is his meaning of, of uh, abide. The second thing I want to notice is not only the meaning of the term, but the significance of Christ as a person in abiding. We sung about it this morning quite clearly and forcefully. Why is Christ the one we hang on to in the same contention as you? Let me suggest four reasons, if I might. First reason is, Christ is the person who offers to us the gift of absolute forgiveness. Now that may test you. Absolute forgiveness. When I come to Christ, confess my sins... I am forgiven. I don't have to be forgiven again and again and again. It is done. You are ready to go to heaven. But that's a hard thing. Absolute forgiveness. We do not experience unconditional forgiveness in our cultural setting. This is a difference I would suggest to you between the biblical concept of forgiveness and psychological concept of forgiveness. If I go to a psychologist because I have a real conflict with someone and we get together, his purpose and goal is to get it out, get rid of it, and once you have, you're done. You can go your way and the one who doesn't like you can go their way. But in biblical forgiveness, 
You do that, but you have another step. You accept the person back into the fellowship as a friend. That's hard, but that's what God demands of it. That's what God does. God did not provide forgiveness because it was some eternal, predetermined principle within the nature of God. God did not say, all right, I'm going to forgive you. He, why can't he do that? Because if God is going to forgive you, he for, must forgive you in a way that harmonizes with his own righteousness. And so when I come to the one who is the object of my abiding, he is one who embraces in himself absolute forgiveness. So that's one thing I want to say. Why, why is the significance of Christ? Because he offers to us absolute forgiveness. I mean, just listen to some of the words in forgiveness that we have in the New Testament. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting our sins against us. Or God made him to be sin who had no sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or one last thing. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom of God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So this is what he has done for us, that we might be forgiven. We cannot add anything to that. Yeah, you can get saved, but this is what you got to do. That does not exist. That's what I mean by absolute forgiveness of God that comes to us. You can find this in some other places. Or take one other text. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. So forgiveness of sin is absolute when I come to God. The second principle that I would, not only does Christ in this abiding in him offer absolute forgiveness, but secondly, he offers us righteousness. This righteousness is called in theological terms justification. Do you folks know justification, this word? But unfortunately, from the Reformation, even in, in Calvin, but especially in Luther, you have what you call, and elsewhere, you've called what Professor Torrance calls as forensic justification. Forensic means legal. Now, let, Professor Torrance, my favorite theologian, the University of Edinburgh, calls this the Latin view. He calls it other things. Now, let me tell you, forensic justification is God goes through life, meets all the demands against us, meets all the required law, and it's done it. Now, forensic justification means you now come before a judge. The judge looks at you and says, now you're in trouble. Because if anybody gets more than 10 speeding tickets, you have to pay $10,000 and five years in jail. Policeman catches you and says, oh, let me look at your book. Let me look you up. He goes back and looks you on his and says, I'm sorry, but this is your 10th speeding ticket. You got to come with me. So he takes you to the judge. 
You stand before the judge, and the judge looks at it, and he, he gives you some harsh criticism. What's the matter with you? Why can't you do this? And you have no explanation. And he says, this will, I'm sorry, will be $10,000 fine and five years in jail. And you say, I don't have $10,000. The judge looks at it, well, that's not my problem. <laughs> but you happen to have a friend in the congregation who raises his hand and says, Mr. Judge, Mr. Judge, my, this is my friend. Is it possible for me to pay his $10,000 and serve his time in jail? Can I do that? He says, well, if you really want to, I'll allow it. You pay the fine, you now go to prison. You now are free from the law. Forensic justification says you're free from any condemnation. So as you leave the courthouse, the policeman who saw you says, why are you going free? You just had a tenth fine. You can't go free. Forensic justification stops there. That's it. It doesn't change you. It doesn't do anything. You're free from the law. So you get in your car, take off. Pretty soon you go by and this says 35 miles an hour and you're doing 55. So the justification did not do anything to change your habits or to change you as a person. Unfortunately, in my point of view, this point of view still prevails in many evangelical churches. We're saved. But then in the church we added <laughs> what is called sanctification, holiness. It does not come out of justification. Now, I want to admit if you are a theologian, it can. But in, given this, for many of us it does not. And therefore, we emphasize upon believers things that we need to do. And we need to do them, we think, in order to secure our assurance before the love and grace of God. And we build what I've called, I've said this before you, what I call the Christian spiritual ladder. And each rung in the ladder is something for you to do. You can add them, I'll add some of mine. Well, you don't smoke. Up the ladder, you do not don't drink. You do not run with people who do. And then you have denominational ones, anything else that you want to add. And you work at this task. And you get on the first ladder, oh, I don't smoke, I'm, I'm pretty good. And in church, the pastor calls for, for testimony and you're just all set to go. You go up and you were with some friends and they were convincing, oh, just try a beer, okay? Just try it. No, I'm not supposed to. Okay, I will. Now it's worse. And you can go up the ladder, up the ladder. I don't know what else you want to put up there. And you get almost to the top. Nobody gets to the top because you're supposed to be humble. <laughs> Down you go. Down you go. And as a professor in my courses, I've noticed that many of my students are there. On a good day, they're feeling great about their... On a bad day, they're down here. Justification is that righteousness that God gives to you and places on, before God on your behalf, and you're free. There's nothing you have to do to make that true. And so when I go to Christ and abide in him, 
one of the things I learned is this is my salvation. This man alone is my salvation. This struck me quite strongly one day when Tracy, in fact, they sang the song again today, Christ is enough. And I was sitting in the back and I, Christ is enough. I wonder what, if we understand what that means. And we all with enthusiasm, yes, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. And I wasn't sure if we really knew why we were saying Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Oh, and the, the song did very well in doing that. It's a great song. Christ is sufficient for you. Now, it's not that God says, I don't care about what you do. He does. But it hinders relationship. Mary Gray, in, in the wonderful article, said that sin is the breaking of the relational core in our human existence. Not everything I do wrong is enough to say, God, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> but this is a very important point I want to say. So the person of Jesus Christ as a gift to us in this sense of abiding is my absolute forgiveness. He is the one who retains for me that relationship. You belong to Christ through the confession of faith in him. But let me give a third. I want to say that Jesus assumed human existence for you in order that you might become a person who is free from the dominion of sin. Christ embodies pure love of Christ for us. And in the incarnation, in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, and you can see it in verse 28, but I just chose 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefits you reap, this word benefits is the same word as fruit. The fruit you reap leads to holiness and results in eternal life. The benefit is not the holiness. It leads to holiness in our lives. But with God, we also have what I'm going to call is perfect love. Let me stress this a little bit. So we have absolute forgiveness, righteousness, that Christ provides for us. And he is also the embodiment of perfect love. Let me spend just a moment on this as we think. We stress the love of Christ much in our church, and rightly so. Let me just give some comments about some of the things I have written and pulled out of my files. God's love does not merely give, but God gives himself the divine being in promise, in faithfulness, in compassion, in mercy, and judgment, and ultimately and definitively in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say something I, I hope you will grasp. The most important aspect of God's love is it is not kept in check by God's other attributes. I want you to think about that. God's love is not kept in check by the other attributes. 
judgment or whatever attributes you might want to put in. Let me make another couple other points about God's love. God does not need us to be the ever-living and loving God that God is. Nor is God constituted by the relationships that God establishes with us in his saving activity. That doesn't make God's love true. God's love is true just because he now decided to save us or something else. It still remains constant. But God seeks us and reconciles us so that we may share in God's own eternal life and love within us. It is God's love is not the kind of love that we think up in our own and I analogically attribute to God. Well, God must mean this because that's what I see. No. We cannot, to, to state that God is love is just the beginning to plumb the depth of who God is. In Jesus Christ, the love of God comes to us and lives out among us in the form of a servant, touching and healing lepers, associating with people of ill repute, washing the feet of the disciples, and finally dying on the cross that we might experience newness of life. In Jesus Christ, who has been delivered up for us all, reveals that God loves us to the uttermost, without reserve, even more than God seems to love himself. I want you to think about the love of God. God does not guard himself by coming to the world as a human person in the incarnation. God doesn't stop and think, well, maybe I ought not to send Jesus <laughs> to experience all of these problems. Maybe they won't understand me. Maybe they won't understand the glory that I give and I have. I don't worry about that. His love is so great that if we read in Ephesians, who being in the form of God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be hanged on to, but rather took the form of a servant in order that you and I might find life. That staggers me. God seems to love us so much in doing what he did not because of some eternal predetermined principles within the divine nature of God. He did it because he loves us and demonstrates that love for us. It is almost incomprehensible, God's love for us. In the incarnation, the incarnation means God assuming human nature. In the incarnation and the cross, God, in the freedom of God's boundless love, has irreversibly committed himself to us. For God's activity in loving us is nothing other than backed up by the very being of God himself. So when I think of abiding in Christ, I'm abiding in someone who cares for me and loves for me. Let me just make a couple observations again out of my own reflections and notes. God's love is as inexhaustible as God's being, for God's love is God's being in ceaseless Trinitarian movement, a movement of love that freely overflows towards others. God could no more cease loving and loving us 
then God could cease being the triune being who he is in his ceaseless interaction and relationship with us in personal love. This is the ultimate, I'm going to use the word ontological. Ontological means nature. This is the fundamental nature grounded why nothing can separate us from the love of God. We may live in, in many different ways. But what God has done more than anything else is that God loves us. And he has acted on that basis. The last point I want to make this morning, wherever my watch is, um, is the function, the function of the branch or the function of the Christian is inadequate apart from the vine. I skipped the, the, the premise on that which incites me. Two phrases in this text. They come in verse 9. Without me, you can do nothing. 